Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On the 1st of November, 2014... I woke up to the screams. The screams I heard were not your regular screams from drunk college students you'd normally hear. They were sometimes serious, horrifying. I jumped out of bed immediately after I heard them, and soon after that, I realized something even more horrifying. The screams were coming from my own house. I exited the room still naked and disoriented. I slept on the third floor of rented accommodation for students where I lived with two other girls, Lily who also went to the same college, and Bethany. I've been living with Lily and Bethany for almost a year, so it was easy for me to identify the person screaming, and it was Lily. I followed the screams until I finally reached them. She was crouching up in front of the main door with the door open. She looked so terrified that when I called her name, she couldn't answer, so I went and approached her to console her when I saw someone lying outside of our house. It was no other than our roommate, Bethany. I recognized her by her brown hair and her purple coat. Is she okay? I asked Lily as I rushed towards Bethany, but as I approached her, I realized that her back was covered in blood. I moved back as I gasped. What the hell happened? I cried. I was going out when I opened the door. I found her like this. Lily answered. Immediately after that, I called the police. Lily and I didn't know what to do, so we just stood there in front of the house next to Bethany. Lily was still holding all the things she was going to take to her class, and I was only wearing a dressing gown and slippers. Luckily for us, the police arrived soon, and so did a whole bunch of people but all the things that happened afterwards are a bit of a blur to Lily and me. So much happened and so fast, so many faces, so many questions. All I remember was what I said to the investigators, and unfortunately, Bethany's face. The second worst part of it all, after finding Bethany dead, was calling her parents to tell them what had happened. For some reason, I felt like a piece of crap. I was delivering the worst news someone could ever get, crushing their soul forever. But the biggest question of them all, who had did it? Well, our town isn't the safest, but it's not the worst either. So it could have been anyone. But because Bethany tended to have sketchy boyfriends who were into drugs and other things, the police thought it might have been related to that, since they didn't have any other leads. In the beginning, Lily and I did not want to be in that house. Lily left for her parents' house for about a month, and I went to mine. Eventually, after the police managed to track Lily's boyfriends, and although he was clear, he did explain he had troubles with some people he dealt with, and they had seen Lily. The police thought this might have been the case, and we were informed of that. 
At first, Lily and I did not want to come back, but after a couple of weeks, we decided that we should. After all, apart from what happened, our specific neighborhood was a fairly safe place. Of course, the apartment was cheap for the price. We also felt that we needed to stay there in order to remember Bethany. And sadly, everybody seemed to have forgotten about her very quickly. As soon as Lily and I came back, our landlord was already deciding to rent her room. And contrary to what people think, for the right price, it's actually not that hard to find people who want to live in a murder house. At the beginning of December, a new girl moved in. Her name was Alice. She was a nursing student and went to a different university than Lily and I. Alice was nice enough and we had things in common, so we quickly became friends. When we told Alice about what happened, she said she was aware of it because the landlord had told her. However, because, like me, she didn't have a good relationship with her family. She really needed to find a quick place very soon, and this was the only one she could afford. I could relate to Alice's family situation, so we really began to get along, particularly during the Christmas break when Lily left to be with her family, but Alice and I stayed there. I was very nervous to be in that home again after Bethany's murder, but Alice and I spent a lot of time together. The only time when we weren't together was when Alice, who worked eight hours at a care home, had to go there for her shift or to cover extra time. Everything seemed to be okay, except when the night of the 24th, something happened. You could say maybe it's just an odd case. But then on the evening of the 25th, Another woman was murdered while on her way to a party. After the second woman was killed, people in town began to worry and knew it was someone targeting women only. I got freaked out quickly because it immediately brought me back to Bethany's death and made me feel insecure. Alice felt uneasy too. We began to think the person doing it might be the person who killed Bethany. Even if the police were almost sure it could have been one of Bethany's boyfriends. Alice and I were so scared living at that place, we even slept with our door open, and oftentimes in the same room. I avoided going out. Alice did not want to go out, but she still had to work, so being home alone for hours was terrifying for me. And it got worse day after day when a different woman was targeted. These happened every day from the 24th to the 31st of December, in different parts of the town. The odd thing is, after the 31st, we didn't hear about the Christmas stalker as people called the murderer. And he wasn't caught. Although, he did remain a hot topic because of different reasons. Targeting women only, attacking during the Christmas celebration period, and also cutting a chunk out of each victim's hair. Many people did wonder whether he could continue to attack. It was more than likely, considering he was not caught. Lily's parents almost didn't let her come back to the house or to university. But Lily insisted because, like me, she was ahead in her career. Lily, Alice, and I felt uneasy for two or three months after the Christmas stalker attacked. However, soon after spring break, we began to feel okay again. During summer that year, we even traveled to California for a week and had a blast. Everything was back to normal, until the 31st of October, the same day Bethany was murdered. Something really silly happened. 
but it opened the door to a very dark encounter. About two weeks ago, I had bought a new dress. When I got home, Alice and Lily were there. I got distracted by something, and when I went to look for the dress, the dress or the bag were not where I left them. I'm a bit messy, so the girls helped me look. Lily said that she recalled seeing me with the bag, but Alice claimed she didn't even notice. We looked everywhere, but I couldn't find the dress, so there was only one possible outcome. One of the girls must have taken it. Now I suspected the person who took my dress was Alice, because of different reasons, but the main one was, was that this was the third time since she moved in that I lost something. This didn't happen before with just Lily and Bethany. And also, I spent a lot of time in Lily's room, while Lily and I were never invited into Alice's room. She was always very secretive. I understand some people are like that, but it did make me very curious and very suspicious. So one day, when Alice quickly left to go to the supermarket, I did not hesitate to enter her room without permission and go through her things. I first looked in her closet but couldn't find anything. I accidentally dropped something I was holding, and it fell under the bed. And when I went to reach for it, I noticed that there was a lot of clothes under the bed. So I got them out to look at them, but then discovered something else. The clothes were covering a box. I grabbed the box to see if my stuff could be in there, when I came across a grim discovery. Different chunks of hair. All the hairs were separated by hair ties around them, and they were all very different. Straight, curly, thin, long, blonde, black, but then it finally hit me. The hair belonged to the women who were murdered last year. I felt a knot in my stomach. I wanted to vomit and scream and cry, but then I noticed something that would make me feel even worse. There was a chunk of hair that I recognized. The chunk of wavy brown hair that belonged to Bethany. I'd not only found the Christmas stalker, but also my friend's killer. She happened to be my roommate. When I first met Alice, I didn't think anything strange about her. She was a very normal person, and nothing about her stood out in a weird way. But that just goes to show how smart she was. When Alice moved in, she seemed so clumsy and lost. She was the only one of us who arrived at the house without any help. That day, Alice was wearing light-colored jeans and a plain crop top. Her hair was blonde, but she had used the cotton candy pink hair dye. A very normal and trendy look for girls nowadays. I remember joking with our friend Lily because they looked exactly the same. Same fashion, same hair color, same height. Alice was shy at first, but after we offered her help to bring her stuff from her car to the house, she seemed to be a lot more calm. She had quite a few things, definitely way more things than me, but still less than Lily. Some of her stuff was really heavy. Lily and I joked with Alice about what was inside the boxes. She joked saying that was just the essential books, clothes, and makeup. And we believed her because there weren't any reasons to doubt someone so relatable. I could never have imagined that in one of those boxes was Bethany's hair. My hands felt heavy while holding the chunks of hair. I felt nervous and scared. What if Alice arrived before I called the police? 
What would she do if she knew that I know she's the Christmas stalker? I needed to act fast, so I stood up and was heading back to the kitchen to grab a knife to keep with me, just in case, and was also going to head for my phone in order to call the police. I managed to grab the knife from the kitchen and tuck it into the back of my shorts. I went back to Alice's room while calling the police. I quickly managed to put the chunks of hair back inside the box and put the box under her bed. I also managed to tell the police I had information about the Christmas stalker. I said it was my roommate, Alice Smith. However, the woman who picked up said, The killer? A woman? Is this a prank? I insisted it wasn't and said I had evidence and was in danger as only Alice and I were home. But as I was saying that, I heard Alice open the front door, so I immediately got out of Alice's room and tried to close the door silently. I heard Alice calling my name, and I didn't know what to do. Should I go to her as if nothing had happened, or should I avoid her? And I stood there, thinking for a few seconds, when Alice finally came up the stairs. Are you okay? I was calling you, she said. I nodded. She squinted her eyes as she did when she was analyzing something. What are you doing standing there? I was in the bathroom, I answered. Still? She asked. Yeah, I got diarrhea, I randomly said. <laughs> okay, she said while laughing. She then headed for her room and I was heading downstairs. I was wearing only shorts and a loose shirt but was going to literally only put on my shoes and a coat and go out like that to be out of her way. While I was putting my shoes on, I quickly messaged Lily, who was out with her boyfriend who lived around the area. I texted her, Help. Alice is Bethany's killer and the Christmas stalker. Please believe me. She's home now. I'm going out. Please call the police. As I was finishing texting, Alice came down rapidly. She was smiling in a very weird and condescending manner. Where are you going? She said as I was walking toward where the coats are. I explained to her that I was going out for some food. There's no need to go get food. I have enough for the both of us. She said as she walked to the door, locked it, and grabbed the keys. Now I must have looked terrified. I freaked out and tried to quickly move and grab the keys hanging from the kitchen counter, but Alice was faster and grabbed them first. Why are you in such a rush to go out? She joked as I tried to move further from her. I have a question to ask you. Were you in my room? She asked me. I told her no, but she clearly knew that I knew her secret. I'm going to my room, I said while quickly moving to the stairs. I noticed that Alice grabbed something from her back pocket and ran to me. I rushed my way up the stairs, but when I was finally on the second set of stairs, about to get to the third floor where my room was, I felt Alice grabbing my arm. I moved my arm hard in order to punch her, but we somehow lost balance. And when this happened, Alice and I fell down the stairs and ended up in the narrow hallway of the second floor. When I fell, the kitchen knife tucked in my back managed to rub my back a little, but it didn't cut me, or at least not in a bad way. I quickly got up despite the pain from falling. However, Alice's strength was incredible. 
Alice managed to get up at the same time as me and tried to get behind me while holding a knife. And when I noticed this, I turned in order to face her. I grabbed the knife from my back and pointed it at her. She laughed. Now what's a little bitch like you going to do with that? She said. And the next thing I know, she grabbed my knife from my shaky, unstable hands and she threw it down the stairs. When she did this, I tried to rush to the bathroom, which was only right next to me now. However, as I got in and shut the door, Alice managed to swing her hunting knife and hit my arm with it. I was in pain, but still tried to push the door shut while Alice tried to open it. It seemed as if we were pushing for an eternity. While pushing, Alice was saying a whole bunch of stuff, but I wasn't paying attention. However, all of a sudden, I heard a commotion outside the bathroom door. Someone had arrived and was trying to fight Alice. I just locked the bathroom door and stayed there while looking at my blood pouring down my arm, when suddenly I heard a familiar voice. Shauna, call the police. It's me, Lily. I opened the door immediately and saw Lily and her boyfriend both restraining Alice. I did what they said. I screamed through the phone. Help, my roommate's trying to kill me. I've been hurt. Thankfully for me, this time it did work, and the police arrived in a few minutes. When the police got there, they restrained Alice. After they heard what had happened, and what I found in her room, they called for more backup to search around the house. Alice was taken to the police station. She didn't confess. When they did the DNA testing, the chunks of hair found in Alice's room matched all the murder victims from last Christmas in Bethany. But that wasn't all of it. It turns out Alice Smith had stolen the identity of another girl, but her real name was Holly Hawkman, a woman from Pittsburgh with a criminal record for injuring two other women, once in a supermarket and another time at a bar. And we don't know why Holly or Alice did it. She's refused to cooperate. The only thing we know is she clearly planned to kill Bethany to be able to move closer to us, or at least that's what we think. But we don't know, and perhaps we will never find out. All I know is that there's true evil in this world, and in most cases, it's the ones who put on the nicest smile are the ones that want to hurt you the most. Twelve seems to be the age when kids start putting the heat on their parents about the truth behind Santa. I was certainly no exception to this rule. How were Santa's elves able to make that video game I wanted in their workshop? I thought Nintendo owned Mario. Or how about the ever-infamous visiting every house in one night question? Did the jolly old man own some kind of time-extending device? Or perhaps the most obvious question of all, how could he have lived for this long? A lot of people says he trains apprentices who take his place every few decades. Others claims he's just immortal. As for everything else, magic seems to be the universal lie everyone had agreed on. Whatever the case, I just went with the conclusion that it was my parents' doing. Of course, they'd deny it and claim ignorance if I confronted them but it wasn't enough to dissuade my beliefs. So, one Christmas Eve, when I couldn't sleep as these questions danced among my dreams of sugar cereals and new games, I decided to investigate the noises coming from my living room. This time, surely, 
I would catch my dad or mom in the act of stowing presents under the tree. At least then, they'd let me in on the truth. But as I entered the living room, I saw a man before me that I did not recognize. He was dressed in red and white, with a slightly overweight body, and he wore a stringy fake white beard. His hair, or what remained of it, was graying around the edges of his classic Santa hat, and his eyes were wide with fright as he dropped a present under the tree. Being the intuitive youth I was, I came to one of two conclusions. Either this was a home invader stealing my family's gifts, or this was the real Santa. I opened my mouth to scream, but the man rushed towards me and covered my mouth. Shh, shh, he said, putting a finger to his mouth, trying a smile. Tears began to roll down my cheeks. I was petrified of this man. And then slowly, he took back his hand and extended it towards me. Oh, it's alright there, little one. You know who I am, right? I nodded, not shaking his hand back. The trembling man nodded as well, then grabbed an empty sack lying on the floor and gestured to the tree. Look, see? I bring gifts. Now run along to bed, or I might have to put you on the naughty list. He started drifting towards the deeper, hearty voice stereotypically associated with Kris Kringle. But I wasn't fooled. Regardless, I wiped my eyes and began to step back from the living room, trying to create some distance between me and the stranger. The man simply watched, wiped his brow and proceeded to approach the fireplace. I stopped and observed, confused as to how he was going to leave my house. But a blast of green flames erupted from the chimney, and the man fell back to the floor. I couldn't see his face, but I'm certain it was twisted in fear like my own. A massive bony hand spawned from the fire, and the arm that followed was draped in raggedy fur. Then another arm, and then the skull of some wild creature with two large horns followed, nearly as large as the fireplace itself. The bones popped and snapped as it slammed its hands onto the floor, and the entire monster was engulfed in the flame. Yet it did not seem to burn anything in the house. Eddie, the monster declared, speaking to what I guessed to be the man on the floor. No, no, Eddie shouted back. I did my part, see? Ten thousand houses, just like you said, right? Ten thousand. I did my part. And yet you allowed a human child to see you. You know the rules. Look, I've learned my lesson. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Just let me go, please. I delivered all the... Let you go. Did you let that woman go, Eddie? Oh, I don't seem to recall you letting her go. This was your second chance. And you've wasted it. What are you going to do? Eddie whispered. I could make out his quaking figure being overshadowed by the creature in the fireplace. The next sound to be heard was a crunch, with a soft beginning and snapping finish. I jumped as the sound repeated a few times, finally letting out a shaky breath. I played in my head that it wasn't what I thought, but when the creature reared its head towards me, I saw the red and white pants hanging from its mouth as it chewed on Eddie's corpse. 
and watched it slurp up its legs like strands of spaghetti. I covered my eyes and tried to tell myself it wasn't real, it just, it wasn't real. And after a quiet minute, I peeked between my fingers to see the monster staring back at me from the fireplace. The pace of my breathing grew quicker and sharper, my eyes unable to escape from the grasp of those empty eye sockets. Now, run off back to bed, little one, or else I might put you on the naughty list. My legs finally found the strength to leave, and I sprinted for my parents' room, diving into the sheets with them. There wasn't a trace of the events of the night before when my family went down to the tree the next morning. There was even a little note next to an empty glass and a half-eaten cookie on the table. Have a Merry Christmas, signed Santa Claus. As much as I tried to take in the warm, comforting atmosphere that came with Christmas Day, I couldn't stop watching the fireplace, terrified that the monster would return. At least, now I knew the truth about Santa Claus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My eyes shot open, reflexively tightened up and looked towards the door. It's 12.01 a.m. Christmas morning, and at any moment the door to the bedroom will burst open and my two beautiful children will run in giggling with presents already in their hand. Seconds passed and nothing happened. It took a full minute before I remembered no one would be coming through the door this year. The kid's accident was only a couple of months ago. I wake up most mornings and for the briefest moment every day, I forget they're gone. I find myself lying in bed, listening for their laughter or cries for breakfast to fill the house before the pain of losing them hits me as fresh as the day it happened. It was a car accident that took them away. I was supposed to pick them up after school, but work ran late. I called my daughter, Samantha, who was 13, three years older than her brother Ryan was, and told her they would have to walk home. It was only a couple of blocks and they had done it plenty of times before. It wasn't a big deal, except that day it would be. She was only a kid around the age of 25 and did not see them crossing the street. She was probably texting, eating, or doing one of the hundred other things people do while driving other than paying attention. But it did not matter what she was doing. She hit both of them, and they didn't make it. Ryan died right there on the road, while the ambulance tried to bring Samantha to the hospital in time to save her life. They were not fast enough, and in the span of 20 minutes, my life was destroyed. Janet, my wife at the time, blamed me. I mean, of course she did. It would not have happened if I had just picked them up as I was supposed to. She made it through the funeral and burials before leaving. And thinking back on it, I could not blame her. I can't stand the sight of myself either. That's why all the mirrors in the house are shattered. 
and why the gun I bought last week was already loaded and waiting in the nightstand by the empty bed. All of these thoughts rushed through my head as I dragged myself out of bed and put my head in my hands. It's the first Christmas I had to spend alone. The house, dark and empty. Last year at this time, the kids were awake and already opening one of the special presents they picked out to start Christmas with. The tree would be lit, casting a festive glow in the living room. The smell of hot cocoa and coffee would be strong in the air. But it was the laughter and the joy that would wake me up the most. As a parent, there was nothing better than seeing your kids excited and happy. And nothing does that more than opening presents on Christmas Day. I then closed my eyes and I tried to collect my thoughts, but a sound from the living room grabbed my attention. It sounded like the soft thud of little feet trying to be quiet as they snuck through the house. It's a sound I've not heard in months. Shuffling off the bed, I made my way towards the sound, opening the door to the bedroom and looking out to the empty living room. This is where they would be sitting, right under the tree, presents in hand, waiting for a sign that they could start ripping into their gifts. Of course, no one is there now. The room was dark and the fake tree was still in its box, propped up against the wall and unopened. It hurt too much to try to get ready for Christmas without them. Looking at the empty living room, I could almost feel them there, sitting legs crossed, looking towards our room, waiting to see if we were ready. They would each get to open their one present and then get whatever was in their stockings, mostly little dollar store trinkets and candy. But it was still exciting to see them even though they were still getting too old for the cheap toys. It was never going to be that way again. The holiday of love and joy for everyone else will be a constant reminder of what I lost made worse by the fact that all the other families, neighbors, and even strangers are coming together, putting aside their differences and problems to have this one special day together. And here I am alone. The weight of the gun in my hand snaps me back to the cold, dark room that is my life now, reminding me that there's still a way out. I look toward the tree and imagine it was like last year. Blue and silver twine circling bright blue LCD lights, superhero and Disney character ornaments from theme parks and rest stops the kids always had to have, decadent glass orbs that were a wedding gift, and the two angels looking back at me and waiting for me to join them. I'm coming, I thought as I felt the cold metal of the gun barrel against my temple. I pulled the trigger. The sound is louder than anything I ever experienced, and I heard it a fraction before the pain hit. So loud I could not see. The world went black as all my senses faded until all I could experience was the roar between my ears. When the pain finally came, it was almost a relief. The sound did not stop, but my focus shifted from earth-shattering rumbling to a drill-like sensation that started in my temple and started boring inward. The combination of the sound and pain dropped me to my knees, the gun slipping from my hand. Reflexively, my hand shot up to the source of the pain and found nothing. Not a mark at the spot just seconds ago where I shot a bullet. Can we open our presents now, Daddy? A voice cut through the pain and I struggled to open my eyes to find the source. 
The dark, empty room I was in moments ago was transformed when my eyes finally pried open. The first thing I noticed was everything is bathed in red flickering light. The glow coming from the back wall where the unopened Christmas tree box used to sit. Now in its place was a fully decorated tree, instead of the blue and silver of years past. The tree was now dressed in red tinsel and lights that contained actual flickering flames that gave the appearance of the tree being consumed by fire. Blood red ornaments seemed to drip the light throughout the tree and reflected the glow around the room. Sitting on the floor in front of me, presents in hand, were my children. Their matching green Christmas pajamas tinged red from the glowing tree, making them look muddy and unclean. Their backs were to me, but from where I was standing, I could see something was not right. Ryan's small arm was bent unnaturally at the elbow, giving it an insect-like appearance, and the hand that rested on his present was twitching uncontrollably. The fingers tapping on the wrapping paper of the present at first seemed like it was merely trying to open it, but the more I watched, I could tell it was an involuntary spasm of pain. The floor underneath Samantha's crossed legs were covered in blood. I could not tell if it was coming from her or the present on her lap. Maybe both. Her head turned towards me. When I could just about see her face, her head flopped back on a clear broken neck. Empty jet black eyes looked directly at me. A thin red trail of blood escaped her mouth, traveled upwards to her face and started to pull in the corner of her right eye. Can we open our presents now, Daddy? She asked again, her voice deeper than I remembered with none of the joy or light she had when she was alive. I had to get out of the house. The pain in my head is unbearable and diluting my equilibrium, but I managed to stumble out the front door. Outside was almost pitch black. All of the lights on the street and neighboring buildings were off. The only source of light was coming from a full blood moon casting an odd dark orange hue over everything in sight. A loud, wet sounding thud caught my attention down the road, and I slowly make my way to the apartment building down the street. The pain comes in waves, pressure building up in my skull blinding me. It got so bad I fell to my knees again. There was not anyone around that could help. The street was empty. The businesses and houses along the road were boarded up and looked abandoned. Nothing looked like it did yesterday. Once I was finally able to get moving, I saw a light on in the living room a couple of houses down on the right where I fell. I walked toward the light and could see a figure standing at the window looking out towards the road in my direction. It was a woman, pale white skin, wearing a white wedding dress. As I got close, she raised her hand as if waving to me, and I saw marks on her arm. There were a long four-inch slit starting from where her palm met her wrist down to her mid-forearm. Blood slowly pumped out in thick rivulets down her arm and onto her white dress, staining it instantly. The pain flared up again and I stumbled in front of the window. She looked down at me, almost understandingly before she turned and disappeared inside her house. We could not help each other, but just as she seemed to understand what I was now going through, I felt as though I understood her loss as well. 
It was this day, Christmas Day. For most, it was a reminder of what they had, but for us, it was too much of a reminder of what was lost. I collected myself for a moment before another loud thud brought me back. I pushed onward, trying to find a way out of this nightmare. The street's Christmas decorations were still up, but the lights were all dead. The usual joyful colors of forest green wreaths and red candy canes looked dull and corroded on the seemingly abandoned buildings. Ripped and haphazardly hung tinsel clung in patches to the dark streetlights. Movement above me caught my attention. Hanging from the streetlight almost hidden by moss-colored tinsel was a slightly overweight man. He appeared to have been dead for some time, his dark features made even more obscure by the pooling of blood in his face and around the noose he hung from by his neck. His large, fat tongue stuck out between thick, swollen lips like a diseased, overgrown worm. He was dressed in a dirty Santa suit that seemed to have a lot of wear and not enough care on it, and I could smell the sweet and vile mixture of alcohol and vomit. Another wave of pain and pressure made me collapse into a ball directly under the man. The unkempt Santa's eyes shot open and he looked at me. He began to struggle against the rope holding him to the streetlight, his legs kicking rocking himself violently back and forth while grunting for help. It was just another sad soul claimed by this unholy night. All I could do was crawl forward, but the pain kept me from getting to my feet. could not help my family, and I could not help myself. I hear the thud again, this time right beside me. The sound was a wet smack of flesh hitting something solid. I rolled over on my side and tried to get a look at what was making that horrid sound, and found myself staring into the bloodshot eyes of a man in a bloody and ripped up tailored suit. His body was smashed and broken, blood leaked from his eyes and mouth into a dark, neatly trimmed, jet black goatee. He must have fell from the building to my left, some kind of business office. I could not tell what company and reading and moving my head too much caused the pain to intensify. As I looked into the man's eyes, his pupils began to shift. He seems to be trying to focus on me. His bones seemed to rearrange themselves in his face and jaw, his mouth twisting into a surprising frown. He tries to raise himself up on his hands and knees, but the bones in his forearms were shattered and jagged cream-tainted shards were breaking through the skin. He shrieked in agony and collapsed back onto his stomach. I could hear a horrible grinding and tearing sound as his body shuddered. All I could do was watch in horror as the bones retreated into his skin, and while screaming, he forced his way upright once again. Standing in front of me, I could see that his body is almost completely healed. His left arm still hung lower off of his shoulder socket. He stood on an ankle that was bent sideways on an angle and could only mean that the bone was still broken, but all the pain seemed to have left him. Instead, what replaced the agony on his face just moments before was a puzzled bewilderment. And as if I was not even there, 
He searched the surrounding area as if he were looking for something he just lost. He quickly found what he was looking for and straightened himself out. I could see he was now standing there with a worn and battered briefcase in his hand. He adjusted what was left of his bloodied Christmas tree tie and walked back into the building I suspected he fell from. If you happened not to see the dark spreading blotches of blood or the rip and tears in his suit, he would just look like any other corporate businessman going to work Christmas morning. I felt a desperate need to get out of there, no matter what it would take. Ignoring the pain, I stood up and blindly started running, not caring about the direction I was heading. The only goal was to escape the awful things I had been witnessing. Nothing was going to slow me down. Not the pain, not the nauseating roar in my head, not even the loud wet thud of a body hitting the pavement again behind me. I did not stop running until my legs could no longer carry me, and out of breath I stumbled up to an abandoned house. The pain was too intense. I fought the urge to lie down, and using my shoulder, I forced the door to the house open and I tripped into the living room. The living room of the house was dark, and the fake tree was still in its box, propped up against the wall, unopened. It hurt too much not to get ready for Christmas without them, and it hurt too much to try. Looking at the empty living room, I could almost feel them there, sitting legs crossed, looking towards our room, waiting to see that we were ready. They would each get to open their one present, and then get whatever was in their stocking, mostly little dollar store trinkets and candy. But it was still exciting to see them, even though they were getting too old for the cheap toys. It was never going to be that way again. I feel the weight of the gun in my hand. I imagine seeing the kids sitting by the tree. Imagine Christmas how it's supposed to be. The best day of the year. The time when you are with your family and loved ones, and all the pain is gone. I want their smiling faces to be the last thing I think about. And I put the gun to my head with tears welling up in my eyes. I pull the trigger. Living in Lower Alabama, we rarely receive snow. I spent most of my life wishing for a white Christmas, a white Christmas that never came. I've only seen snow twice in my 33 years here. I always wanted to share that with my two boys. I just knew that they would love to play in it, and now I find myself staring out of a window at the mounds of that icy precipitation surrounding my home, regretting every wish I had ever made for a snow-covered Christmas. When I think about it, it really started in summer. Our summers are always hot and extremely humid, but that year, it was even more unbearable. We steadily saw temperatures of well over 100 degrees, and everyone I knew begged for relief. The heat wave lasted all the way until the week before Halloween. Then suddenly, a massive hurricane spawned in the Gulf of Mexico. The weather forecaster for our local news frequently referred to it as a monster. Looking back, I believe it was more of a demon. A demon that brought hell with it. 
but a much different one that I had read about in the Bible. The storm passed, leaving devastation for miles around. It had affected every state within the southeast, but Florida most of all. Help was sent from various utility companies, government aid agencies, and even regular citizens to help with the relief. And when I say various, I mean from every single state in our region. It was amazing to see the effort put forth to help the people that had lost everything. I'm sure a lot of us thought that was the worst they could get. I wish that had been true. But that was when the rain started. As November came, we felt the first droplets in our tiny town. It was an odd occurrence, but not odd enough to raise any eyebrows. I mean, how bad could a couple of days of rain be, right? The problem came when days turned into weeks and low-lying areas became flooded. Homes and towns nearby were washed away in a matter of hours since the levees broke. My wife Susan constantly thanked God that our house was nestled on a high elevation among trees. I found myself thinking the same thing, but God had nothing to do with what happened. No God I could ever believe in anyway. The week of Thanksgiving the rain finally subsided, and I am sure that was something everyone would say they were thankful for. The problem was, what remained was the cold. That in itself was not strange, but the severity of it was. We saw temperatures close to freezing the following week, and that was something we rarely saw until late January or early February. And my oldest son, Jacob, began singing that silly song by Bing Cosby. My wife beamed at the thought of them seeing snow on Christmas Day, and the foolish child in me felt the same. The boys will finally get to see snow, Paul, Susan squealed. I know, I can't wait to see Tommy waddling in it, I responded. Those words ring in my head even now. I have to fight back tears when I think of just how stupid I had been. We were so preoccupied with setting up decorations and buying presents that we were oblivious to what was happening all around us. The snow actually started falling the first week of December. It was up several inches within the first day. It was amazing to see at first, but when it kept coming, some people became worried. If you have never been in the south when it snows, you would probably not understand. You see, we're not prepared for that kind of weather. Everything shuts down. People stay home and rarely go out driving. Now I know it sounds ridiculous to anyone else, but that is what happens, and it just kept coming. My wife and I had let the boys play in the fresh powder originally, but when it had gotten so high that I could barely walk in it freely, we decided it was best to keep them indoors. Hardware stores had started bringing in snow shovels to help clear paths, something that you rarely found in our town. I bought one of the last ones on the shelf as people scrambled to manage the icy foreign invader. The situation seemed to become worse as small flurries became near blizzards. My wife stayed glued to the news and weather broadcasts. It appeared that the northern states had almost been buried in the frigid powder. The president had actually issued a state of emergency, urging people in the northern portion to evacuate south. 
That was when I finally started to be concerned. These people had been told to come south, but our situation was hardly any better. The weatherman stopped trying to be accurate. His predictions of an end to the madness never came. The temperatures continued to drop, and it was not long before we saw them go from zero to negative digits. Now, it was unheard of in my state for it to be that cold, and people were getting afraid. Plumbing fixtures began to burst from frozen pipes, and people were left without water until they could thaw. Our world had become a freezer in a few weeks, and none of us were prepared for it. My family found themselves wearing our thickest clothing, even inside. It felt like no matter how high I set the thermostat, it was not enough. We should have left then. By Christmas, we had no power and utility companies had stopped trying to traverse the harsh conditions to repair down lines. Local officials had abandoned emergency protocols to save themselves. We began hearing rumors of our neighbors attempting to head further south into Florida. Susan suggested the same, but I reminded her of the destruction still left from the hurricane, and I was afraid that we would be worse off without shelter. So I made the decision to hunker down in our home. I cleared a path to the fireplace that had only been used for decoration, and set to the task of getting a fire going. If it was not such a dire situation, my wife would have found amusement in me attempting something like that. I had never even seen someone use a fireplace, let alone light one. After several attempts, we were able to burn what little wood was readily available near our home. My family and I huddled around it, as if it were going to save us from the fate that waited outside. The whiteness had engulfed our home. The mounds had risen above the windows, breaking some of them. I was forced to reinforce each one to keep the cold out. We sealed every crack or crevice that could possibly let out the heat and tried to remain together. My wife wrapped our children in blankets and pulled them close. The boys did not understand. We were afraid to let them know how serious the situation was. The fear that rested on my wife's face was enough to keep me from ruining what could be our last Christmas. We still attempted to have a big dinner, despite our ability to effectively cook. I also learned how to cook within a fireplace for the first time. It would have been an interesting experiment if it had not been essential for our survival at that time. We gave up on the idea of turkey or ham, but we had always had a decent stock of canned food. It was a habit I had picked up from my grandparents, and I often wondered how they were faring during all of this, but I had my immediate family to worry about. Our world had been plunged into an endless sea of white. I even had nightmares of the stuff that Christmas Eve. My children normally woke me up early on Christmas morning, but when my eyes fluttered open, I assumed it was still night. The house was so dark that I could barely see my wife lying next to me. I slowly rose from my bed, still completely clothed, and nudged Susan awake. The house had become far colder than it should have been, and I immediately headed for the fireplace. The fire had gone out at some point, so I ran for the back door, pulling on my boots. My aim was to gather more wood to get the fire going again, 
but as soon as the door cracked open, I was pelted with a mixture of snow and ice. It stung my face and I cursed at the door while trying to shut it again. Our home had been completely buried in the vicious powder, and I finally understood why no lights permeated the windows. My watch read 9 o'clock, but it felt much earlier. Susan stumbled into the living room, asking what I was doing. I told her what time it was, and confusion filled her eyes. She went for the window and was greeted with what I already knew. I do not remember ever seeing her quite so afraid, and the feeling was mutual. But I buried my emotions down though, knowing that I had to be strong for my family. I told her to go check on the kids while I tried to get the fire going again. She disappeared down the hall, and I made my way to the dining room. Now, the table and chairs had been passed down through my family for generations, but I knew it would have to be sacrificed. I set to dismantling the wooden chairs first, but was stopped by the sound of my wife's scream. I rushed through the hall listening to the awful sound echo in my ears. I could feel tears forming in my eyes, but I pushed them back as I rounded the corner. She was grasping the doorframe of our children's room. We had put them together so that Jacob could help keep an eye on Tommy, and I could see her body shaking as she stared into the room. Tears rolled over her cheeks as I turned to see inside. The window of their room had given in to the weight of our captor, despite my attempt at strengthening it. Snow had buried the boys in the night, and that was when I noticed the flakes of white all around my wife's hands. Susan had attempted to uncover them, and I could see the pale blue skin of their faces huddled together in Jacob's bed. It would have been a sweet scene if it were not for their skin tone. Something Susan would have taken a picture of, but this was not that scene. I pulled Susan away as I tried to hold back the sick feeling in my stomach. I felt as though I could release what little Christmas dinner I had in me on the floor at any moment. Soon her sobs subsided. But when I looked into her eyes, she simply looked numb. I'd never seen her this way, and I tried to break her from this trance she seemed to be in, but she said nothing. Her eyes would not even turn my direction when I spoke. Something had broken inside Susan that morning, and I do not blame her. I sat her next to the fireplace and wrapped her in a blanket while I returned to the dining room polished wood did not want to burn, but I was determined to give us warmth, so I did not stop until we had a fire. I made it a point to ask Susan to stay by the fire while I returned to the boys' room. I could not leave them that way, but when I reached the door I found myself pausing just outside. I felt the warm and salty specks across my cheek before I even saw them. I slowly stepped inside and slid gloves over my hands. I finished clearing away the snow and noticed why they had not simply come to our room. The wood I had used to seal off the window had struck my oldest first. It left a gash near his temple that would have knocked a grown man unconscious. 
I can only imagine his ten-year-old body had not lasted long after. Tommy had obviously woken after. His tawny form clung to his big brother like a teddy bear. And I internally cursed myself for not putting them to bed with us that night. But I knew it was too late for that kind of thinking. I removed their bodies and wrapped them in blankets before placing them in the guest room. I took one final look at their tiny bedroom place that held so much joy previously. I imagined the two of them playing and sometimes bickering. My lips tried to curl upwards, but they could not. My eyes drooped to the floor as I turned away and shut the door. I've not returned to that room since, and I doubt I will. I just returned to the living room in hopes of comforting Susan. But when I got there, the blanket was all that remained by the fire. A quick search of the house revealed that the back door had been opened, and a tunnel had been formed in the frigid wall on the other side, leaving the floor inside covered in snow. I tried to follow Susan's footsteps, but eventually, they disappeared behind a solid wall of that cursed white. I could only imagine her frantically digging through it, and the sound of what was above coming down on her body. I tried to dig into it myself in search of her body, but the layer that remained was frozen solid. It was like digging my hands into cement, and I knew that Susan could not have survived it, even if my mind did not want to believe it at the time. I found myself picking at it with tools anyway, feeling as though I had nothing left to do. I don't know how much I cried while working at that pointless task, but I do know it started to freeze to my cheeks. I did not stop until my arms could not lift again. And that is when I sat among the snow and stared at what my world had become. I lost track of how long I sat there, or when I decided to come back to the fire. I do remember when I started burning the Christmas gifts, and how hard a choice that had been. I opened each one slowly and savored the idea of the children playing with it for the first time. I could even see Susan standing over them with her camera in hand. She would be giving her biggest smile and snapping away to save each memory. She loved taking pictures, but what I had to do did not need to be captured on any sort of film. I started to feel the numbness that night. That same numbness that overtook Susan earlier that day. It was as cold as the snow that surrounded me, and all I could think of was that this had been my fault. I should have escaped with my family when I still had the chance. I don't know if it was pride, ignorance, or both, but the guilt was too much. It consumed me and took away everything this holiday was supposed to be about. I started writing this in hopes that someone reads it. I do not know what has happened to the rest of the world, only what has happened to me. I do not know how long I could survive here. My food is running low, and I've run out of things to burn. I cannot say for certain how long I've been here since my watch has stopped turning, and I still cannot see the sun. I think I'll try to dig myself out tomorrow. And if you do find this, no, I did not simply give up. I just wish I had done this sooner. I'm so sorry, Susan.
Jacob and Tommy. You guys deserve better than this. I hope you can forgive me. Sincerely, Paul Richardson. Every year around the Christmas holiday, magical things always seem to happen. Some things are marvelous and joyful, like visits from Santa or a snowman coming alive. Many people say they could feel the Christmas magic in the air or around them. Some things aren't so joyful. Around Christmas every year, kidnappings, murder, and suicide rates go up drastically as well. Even when horrid things like this happen, people often feel, yet rarely do they admit, that they still feel a kind of holiday magic behind it, although it is a dark magic. One example comes from a Christmas demon known as the Krampus. The Krampus is well known in countries like Germany and Switzerland for taking naughty children in the dead of Christmas Eve night. Here's one such account. December 6, 2013. My name is Ellie Rockford. I'm currently 7 years old as I write this. I confide in this journal something I can't tell my family because they would never believe me. I'm often told that I'm very smart for my age because I say and do things that most kids my age don't. But if I tell a strange story, no matter how hard I get them to believe me, my parents and siblings say it's just my imagination. Today I looked out my window into the street by the house and saw a man who looked like a shadow with horns. His eyes glowed orange and seeing him scared me a lot. He was ringing a bunch of bells for something, but... I just tried to ignore him and sleep. Then I heard a knock on the door. I went down to see who it was for mommy and daddy, but when I got to the door, someone stuck a card through our mail slot and ran off really quickly. The card had a picture of a monster who had bull legs, a tail, and horns on a scary looking goat head that looked half human. I was so scared that it was the thing in the street, but I don't know what to do. I think I know what it is, but I hope I'm wrong. I showed the card to my dad and he said it was Krampus. The bottom of the card said, Gross von Krampus. Daddy says every year Krampus punishes bad boys and girls on Christmas, but Santa gives good boys and girls toys. So now I'm not so scared. I always get toys on Christmas, so I must be a good kid. I still didn't tell them about the thing on the street. December 24th, 2013 My parents will be gone for most of tonight and Christmas morning tomorrow for some stupid work thing they both have. We usually have a Christmas at 6 o'clock, but we have to wait for mommy and daddy to get home first. Mom told Brad, my oldest brother, that we would have a babysitter because she didn't trust him to watch all five of us by himself. Mom often let Brad watch us, but we had broke a lot of things the last couple of times we were left alone, so Mommy said she would get Rebecca to watch us. Rebecca came to the house at five. She was very pretty and Brad couldn't stop staring at her. Mommy and Daddy left a couple of minutes after Rebecca got there. This was the first time Rebecca had watched six kids at the same time before, and I don't think she knew what she was getting herself into. My youngest sister, Molly, who's three, threw a tantrum after our parents left, 
Levi and Garrett, my younger twin brothers who are both five, and they started fighting. Brad talked with Rebecca most of the night, and Rachel spent most of the night in her room. Mom and Dad said that we would still get Christmas gifts tomorrow, but we had to wait to open them until they got home. We made hot cocoa, but the cocoa maker is broke, so the hot chocolate burned our mouths. And we all got candy canes, too. Rebecca started to put us to bed at 8 and finally succeeded at 9.30. Even though she was clearly exhausted and frustrated with us, she told us that she had fun and that she wouldn't have spent Christmas Eve any other way. I woke in the middle of the night about 11 to see a crimson moon casting a dim, red glow on the winter snow. I looked out of my bedroom window and saw a red object coming towards our house, fast. It was hard to make out, but it looked like a red sleigh being pulled by reindeer. I instantly recognized this as Santa's sleigh and ran to hide on the stairs and waited for him to come down the chimney anxiously. Out of the window, to the right of our fireplace, I saw the sleigh fly overhead and heard many hooves trotting on the roof. I made sure to remain perfectly still and silent as a mouse. I waited for what felt like an eternity while soft footsteps echoed on the roof above me, getting closer to the chimney. I heard scuffling as ash and dust started falling from the fireplace, and soon, two black boots landed. Then the rest of jolly old Saint Nick came through the fireplace with a bag of toys on his back. Without speaking a word, he went straight to our tree. He took gifts from his bag and scattered them under our lit-up plastic evergreen, and then started on the milk and cookies we left for him. I felt that I had held my breath the entire time I was hiding on the stairs. I couldn't believe I was spying on the real Santa Claus in my own home. Eventually, he made his way over to our stockings and started putting various knickknacks and candles in our stockings starting with Molly. When he got to Levi, he took out a small black rock and eyed it sadly before placing it in Levi's stocking. It took me a second to realize that he gave Levi coal. I tried to stifle a laugh to the best of my abilities, but a small squeak escaped my lips anyway. Santa turned around and scanned the room. I remained as still as ever. He turned back to the stockings, this time keeping his back to me, and put a piece of coal in Garrett's stocking too. He put a candy cane in Brad's stocking, along with a pocket knife. Rachel got a new phone and some Kit Kats. Finally, he moved to my stocking, which is always furthest to the right, even though I'm the middle child. He began rummaging through his sack as I leaned forward excitedly to see what presents I was getting. Santa pulled out a large jet black piece of coal and stuffed it into my stocking. I felt a wave of anger, sadness, and regret all at once. I almost stood up right then to tell off the jolly old elf, but when he turned around, I saw tears in his eyes. He looked as if he were filled with similar emotions as I was, like he didn't like to have to give bad kids coal. It was for this reason that I remained quiet as Santa climbed back up in my chimney, got onto his sleigh, and flew away. I watched out my downstairs window as the sleigh flew from the roof and into the black abyss of Christmas night. I sat there, still in place for a very long time, 
pondering how I could be a better child next year when I spotted something out the window again. It looked like the same figure I'd seen before, but this time, the sleigh looked as if it were black. I wrote this off as it was really dark outside, except for the moon's red glow. I wondered why Santa would come back. Maybe he forgot something. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe I wasn't naughty and he was on his way back right now to fix his mistake. My mind was racing from one thought to another as I began to hype myself up for all my possible Christmas presents. I'd stopped watching the window and had begun to daydream about the next morning, until hooves on the roof interrupted my thoughts. I heard loud, heavy clacking this time as he got closer to the chimney. Ash began to fall down the chimney, creating an ashy cloud around the fireplace as what I assumed to be Santa began coming down and landed with a loud crash. My final thought before seeing what came next was, how has no one noticed all of this? Through the cloud of thick black ash protruded two large horns with stripes of red and white like those of a candy cane's. As the dust settled, the rest of the figure was revealed. His skin was a pale, icy-looking blue. His beard was like Santa's, except it was black and came to a point. His nose was long and his face looked grizzled, but more human than I thought. His horns looked like they touched the ceiling if he jumped. His body looked human in shape, but animal in appearance. His legs were twisted and ended in hooves, like that of a cow or a bull. He had a long tail. His torso was contorted, and everything but his face and palms was covered in fur. He had broken chains around his wrists, and what looked like a heavy, red Christmas ornament attached to his tail by another chain. His ears were pointed, and so were his yellow teeth. Despite his horrid, outlandish appearance, the most noticeable things about the creature were its bells that it wore and the basket on its back that had the limp arm of a child hanging from it. The stories were true, and so was Krampus. I couldn't believe my eyes. I had seen sleighs go by, magic reindeer fly overhead, and had even seen Santa Claus himself. But none of that could have prepared me for the beast that is Krampus. He moved around the room with such speed that I was caught off guard. The thing looked about eight feet tall without its horns, and with him he towered over everything in our large home. He made his way to the fireplace and took the coal from Levi's stocking. He rolled it around his long, bony fingers for a moment, then took the coal from Garrett's stocking, and then, finally mine. He studied the coal for a moment. A wide smile full of pointy yellow teeth beamed across his face. Naughty little children, I heard it say in a cold, raspy voice. A shiver ran up my spine as he, or it, spoke. I was paralyzed in both fear and awe at the creature that roamed my living room beneath me. I thought he was moving towards the tree, but it walked past it and started going down the hallway into... Well, it's a Levi and Garrett's room. I remember the things my father used to say about it. That he whips bad kids, takes them away, 
Sometimes he eats them. Sometimes he shakes them and scares them into being good. All these horrid things and more danced through my head as the monster creeped into the twins' room. I tried to scream with all my might, but no sound would escape my mouth. As I finally was able to choke out, Levi, Garrett, screams had already filled their rooms. Levi came running out of his room screaming his head off as Garrett followed suit. The creature's long, twisted arm reached out from the room and grabbed Garrett's leg, pulling him back into the room. I stood up from my spot on the stairs and motioned for Levi to come to me. Garrett's screams fell silent. The Krampus emerged from the room alone. His nose seemed shorter now, his face even more deformed now. I gripped Levi's hand tightly and we ran for Brad's room. I wailed on his door again and again, but he wouldn't come out. I would have tried harder to get his attention, but I could hear it coming up the stairs as each hoof hit each step. I took Levi to the laundry room and told him to hide in there. Once he was inside the laundry chute, I began lowering the laundry hamper so he could get downstairs without confronting the monster. Before he was lowered out of sight, I told Levi to go start the hot cocoa maker, because I had a plan. He nodded, and once he got to the bottom, I felt the hamper get lighter as he climbed out. I heard the hooved footsteps getting closer and closer to the laundry room. I began pulling the laundry hamper up and climbed in just as the door was violently swung open, despite the locks on it. The beast licked his lips with his long, skinny tongue as he slowly approached my trembling body inside the hamper. I began to bounce myself and rock the hamper as Krampus got closer and closer. The hamper wouldn't fall no matter how hard I rocked it, and the creature was nearly upon me. I felt its breath on me as it excitedly panted, getting further. I expected its breath to be hot like that of a dog's, but instead, it felt like the coldest winter chill caressing my skin. I shook the whole hamper as savagely as I could before it finally budged. The hamper fell, and before I knew it, I was on the first floor. I crawled out of the chute and ran to the kitchen as the demon rampaged upstairs. As I came into the kitchen, I noticed no signs of my little brother, but I did see that the hot cocoa maker was on. The stomping of the creature upstairs continued, but it didn't seem to be near the stairs, so I focused on finding Levi. He wasn't hiding in any cabinets, and he wasn't anywhere in the living room. I decided that he might be in his room, so I quietly creeped to it slowly, but steadily. The twins' room was trashed entirely, and Levi wasn't there. There was blood on the wall, and I shuddered to think that it once belonged to my baby brother. A small bloody handprint was smeared on the wall by the door. Dread was all I could feel in the moment. Dread for misbehaving all year. Dread for what had become of my little brother. And dread for the silence that fell in place of hooves stomping around upstairs. I quickly and silently made my way back to the kitchen and took out a large coffee pitcher of scalding hot cocoa. As I crept out of the kitchen into the living room, I had an ominous feeling of dread as if I were being watched. 
I could barely see in the dark of night, and I couldn't locate our light switches. The only source of light I had was the dim, eerie glow of the lights from the Christmas tree. As I scanned all entrances to the dining room, something moving caught my eye. The chandelier had begun to start swinging, as if something had bumped it or hit it. There was soft thudding that accompanied the squeaking of the rocking corona. As I looked around to make out another vague shape in the glow of the Christmas lights, I saw what bumped the chandelier. The monster was crawling on my ceiling like a large, twisted spider. His arms were bent in excruciating-looking ways to grip the ceiling and watch me with his eyes that burned like fire. I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs at the very sight of it, but instead, I held my ground. A cruel smile spread across the face of the predator who was stalking me. He undug his fingers from the ceiling and landed on the floor in front of me with a thunderous crash, mere inches away from me. This was his mistake. I threw the entire pitcher of burning hot cocoa on his face, and the beast immediately started writhing in agony. He covered his hands over his quickly blistering face. He took his hands off of his face just as it began to melt and peel off, the bits of flesh and blood melting away to reveal his horrible skull with his eyes still in their sockets. It froze for a while, and for a brief moment, I was happily assured and content that the Krampus was dead. But then, it only started cackling an awful and disturbing malevolent laugh. It pierced my ears like knives and loomed over me to instill as much fear as it could. And it was working. Before my very eyes, the muscles around the creature's skull started to grow back, and in seconds, its new face had formed. It looked more like a goat with pointy teeth than a human, but you could still partially see it in there. Its beard was still as long as before, but now it looked almost out of place on the demonic beast's head. I turned and ran behind the Christmas tree, avoiding the abomination's lanky arms as I ran by. The Krampus immediately started coming towards the tree, intent on harming me. I pushed the large plastic evergreen on the monster and run back upstairs to find my little brother. I wailed on my other siblings' doors, but no one would wake up no matter how hard I pounded on them. Everyone locks the doors to their rooms when we go to sleep so that we're not bothered, but the doors are also heavy and not much sound can get through them. I began to shout for Levi as loud as I could hoping that he'd respond. Then Levi appeared at the top of the stairs. We stared at each other. He looked terrified and sad. I started to walk towards him when suddenly my baby brother was impaled by the Krampus's horns. His body was thrusted up and thrashed around by the savage creature as he convulsed and shook spasmatically on its horns. Now I've seen people die on TV, but watching it in real life is entirely different. No one should have to go through it. My brother didn't deserve that. No one deserves that. Santa and Christmas are about love and cheer. Krampus made Christmas about hatred and retribution. 
I watched helplessly while the thing ripped my brother's shaking body from its horns and dropped his lifeless body into the basket on his back. The demon began to strut towards me with malicious intentions, so I ducked into mom and dad's empty room and opened the top right drawer in my dad's dresser. I wasn't tall enough to see what I was reaching for, but when I felt it, I pulled out my dad's pistol. I opened the other dresser and had put two bullets in the pistol by the time the creature burst open the door. I shot it twice and hit it both times, but it was unfazed by the bullets. The loud noise clearly hurt both our ears, and as the monster clawed at its ears while screaming in pain, I began to quickly crawl towards the window until something long, thin, tight, and slimy gripped my right leg and began pulling me back. I looked behind me to my terror to see the Krampus was using its incredibly long tongue to pull me to its mouth full of sharp, jagged teeth. I began to breathe in and out quicker and quicker and began panicking as my foot got closer to its mouth. I lifted my leg and kicked it in the face twice before its tongue finally loosened. Before I could breathe, Krampus picked me up and began shaking me wildly. I kicked him a second time, this time with my right foot, and he flung me into the hallway where I began limping away. Now I had reached the end of the hallway when I heard a loud popping crack sound, moments before feeling a sharp sting all across my back. I looked back and saw that the holiday devil had whipped me with a whip like a lion tamer would use. I felt the warm ooze onto my back as new pains started setting in. I started to limp away to safety when I was picked up by Krampus again. His long, cold fingers wrapped around my back and stung my cut even worse. He looked at me, right in the eye, before lifting me behind him and dropping me into the birch basket on his back. On the outside of the basket, it looks like it could fit only a couple of kids inside. But the inside was massive. I fell into a mountain of bodies. There were hundreds or thousands of kids in that one basket, piled on each other, not all alive. Where you couldn't see other kids which made up the trembling ground, you saw only darkness. No sounds could be heard from inside or outside really either. Kids would scream, mutter, shout until their throats clearly hurt, but no sounds came from their mouths. Every time I thought the situation couldn't get any worse, it got way worse. I waited what felt like millennia to escape as new kids would fall in and join the confusion to show how much time passed. Eventually, the Krampus reached into the basket and began to pull out another child. His arm became larger as he reached into the basket and stretched out to a panicked girl. I grabbed onto her leg and let myself be carried to salvation. When we were pulled from the basket, I let go of the kid and fell behind Krampus. He didn't notice I escaped. He was too focused on the girl. He looked at the small girl for a second before biting into her flesh with his large, sharp teeth. I never knew the kid's name before the creature devoured her. 
but I owe her my life for helping me escape. I backed away slowly from behind as Krampus feasted on my fellow child at its dinner table. I had no idea where I was now, but it was dark and it was cold. I think it's where the creature lives. After the monster was finished eating, he picked up a small wooden box, opened the top, and spat something that glowed a bright green into it. He then took the box over to a rusted doofus that he opened, entered, then left a few minutes later without the box. He then left the room, leaving the child's remains on a large platter and a rusty door to my curiosity. I opened the door to see dozens of more wooden boxes. I also saw many creepy-looking porcelain dolls and other creepy toys. The door behind me closed, and I was emerged in total darkness. I got out my phone and used it to barely light my way. I walked past a jack-in-the-box with a scary face. I walked past a baby doll that looked withered and old. I found a sack doll that looked like a creepy rotting skeleton. I thought it was like Santa's rejected toy shop until I found the word misfits smeared in red paint next to a clown with a skull for a head, blue eyes in its sockets, and big fleshy hands. I was terrified someone else was caught in that room before. When I got closer to the clown, it jumped towards me and yelled, Wanna play? I got really scared and jumped back as the clown let out a scary laugh. I heard scurrying and tiny footsteps of other toys from all around. I started catching the dolls and gingerbread men turning their heads as I ran along the walls trying to relocate the door. I found another message on the wall. Why can't we die? It was scratched into the wall by something. I wanted nothing more than for this night to end. When I located the door, I bolted for it as soon as I saw it, but was tripped by a toy soldier with realistic burns on half of his face. I kicked the tiny hunk of plastic away and moved closer to the door when a deformed baby doll appeared from the darkness and sank her teeth into my leg. I felt a surge of pain and fell to the ground. I furiously punched the doll's head repeatedly until it unlocked its tiny teeth from my flesh. The porcelain atrocity scurried off as other terrible toys danced around me in the darkness, and more and more of them kept popping up and coming out of, well, out of the boxes like the one Krampus spat the glowing thing into. The toys began muttering words, but I couldn't make out what they were saying. The muttering got louder and louder until I understood some of their words. Feel our pain. He killed us, but not entirely. He gobbled me and spat my soul into a puppet. Kill us. Let us die. The things they said were terribly dreadful, to say the least. I got up and started to make my way to the door as the dolls chanted more obscene things to me. We're going to eat you alive like he ate us. I'm going to rip out your eyes. Although they continued to chant, none of them came towards me again as I moved around the dark room. I saw a small toy skeleton in Santa's clothes with a beard move by me. 
A puppet with many nails sticking out of its wooden head was strung up to the ceiling, moving and wrestling with its strings. I spotted a stool that was pulled up to a workbench with toys and a teddy bear on it. The teddy bear had real bear claws sticking from its paws and real human teeth in its mouth. I reasoned that this was Krampus's demented toy shop and decided to leave before it was too late. I walked past the bench to the door and started pulling on the rusty metal handle. The door was extremely heavy, but slowly budged and started opening as I pulled back with all of my might. Light began to bathe the room, and the misfit toys dashed to the shadows to avoid the light. I ran from the dark room, closed the door behind me, and leaned on it for a while to catch my bearings. I looked around at the only other room in this place that was familiar to me. I went by the long table the monster ate the nameless girl at, trying not to think about it. Trying to think of something. Anything to distract me from the horrors I had bared witness to in the most unsuspecting and happiest time of the year. I walked to an open door and poked only half my head out to scan the perimeter of the room. It led to a large room that had various whips, saws, and various other torture devices. I kept in and kept to the wall. I spotted three dark wooden doors amongst the darkness and concrete walls. I also found a window, and the snow outside was falling so slowly, so peacefully. Two doors were on one large wall opposite of the window, and the other was on the wall to the right of the window. I first tried on one of the doors on the long wall, but had decided beforehand to go to the door right of the window, thinking it would lead me closer to a door out, or something. The walls were lined with racks, and racks were lined with hellish masks. Some had horns, some had long serpent tongues sticking out, some had teeth. Some had patches of skin. Some had antlers. One was a wired skull with antlers, and the antlers had lit candles on them. It was so strange. The room was so large. The other door led to the same room. I left without moving the door in fear that closing the heavy door would create noise and would lead the creature to me. I walked alongside the wall to avoid the equipment straight to the only door I had left. I opened the door slowly and with caution. The first thing in the room I noticed was a strange tree that looked like an upside-down, purple Christmas tree. The trunk was on the bottom, but the pines and branches looked upside-down. The tree was decorated with red and green lights and small bones. There was another window in this room, but it was on the same side as the last. There was an open doorway that led to a hallway that teed off, and two signs labeled the directions. The right one said, Surveillance Room, and the left one said, Stables. I went to the stables thinking I might be able to find a reindeer to fly out of that place with. It seemed like a silly plan now in hindsight. I opened the stable door and awful smells invaded my nostrils immediately. There was frost on the floor as well. There were eight stables lined up along the wall to the right, 
each with demonic reindeer heads sticking out. Below each head was the doors to each stall, each with pendants of names on them. I read the names out loud as I started down the row. Each deer was grotesque in their own right. One or two had exposed skulls. Each had jagged teeth. Some had manes and others had dried blood on their fur. Seven of their eyes glow red. Slasher, I said as I passed the first one. Wrathful. Gorgon. Putrid. Cyclops. Cyclops was missing one fiery eye. Rabies. Goner. The last monstrous reindeer looked like a hellish Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. His head held flames that danced from its gnarled snout to the back of its mane. Between its sharpened bloody antlers, furiously flickered bolts of electricity. Blitzkrieg. I decided riding one was out of the question and began searching for an exit. I realized the only door to the room was the one I came from. I looked all over the room looking for some other way out and saw the reason for the cold. The top crease and upper part of one wall was missing and led outside. It was far too high to reach. I left the stable room and went into the surveillance room. The handle felt icy cold as I slowly opened the door. The room, like all the rest, was large. One wall was covered with monitors. The bottom middle monitor stuck out more than the rest and had a keyboard below it. A chair was also pulled up to it. Each screen had various kids on it, some in dreadful conditions, others minding their own business. No sound came from the monitors, but I started to notice I was hearing a ticking noise. A clock above the door I came in read 5.45. Christmas Day didn't start at my house until 6 o'clock. The wall opposite of the monitors had many names scratched into it. I wondered if the dead girl's name was scratched into the wall. A door that read exit was to the right of the monitors, but the computer said search name. I sat in a large chair and typed in Garrett Rockford. A nutcracker that had two bodies attached from the sides of its head popped up. Each body seemed to be trying to yank away from the other. Its face looked like it was in pain, and it had the same color of eyes as Levi and Garrett. I looked up Levi Rockford, and the same thing popped up. I sat frozen in awe for a moment. Tears filled my eyes and ran down my cheeks. The ticking of the clock seemed to turn into clopping as I sobbed. I was crying more than I ever cried before. I cried so hard I began hearing a ringing. Then the chair I was in was spun around and I was face to face with Krampus. He looked menacing and insidiously sinister. His horns were partly covered in blood, his long fingers looked sharp, and his eyes burned like never before. He waved his long, sharp, bony finger at me and tisked. Oh, naughty, naughty, he said cruelly and mockingly. He licked my face with his incredibly long tongue, then began to wrap it around my throat. He started constricting his tongue and choked me. 
I was gurgling and coughing and struggling did close to nothing. I started feeling weaker and weaker as my head heated up my lungs and screamed for air. My vision even started to become blurred. Then I knew if I didn't do something quickly, I was going to die. I punched him in the face with all my might and knocked him back for only a brief moment as his tongue recoiled into his mouth. I utilized my time and ran toward the exit. I felt the ground shake directly behind me as heavy hooves shook the floor violently in their wake. I felt the creature's cool breath on the back of my neck. I pushed the door open and ran into the freezing cold as my pursuer followed suit and I ran until I was knee-deep in snow, until a lanky hand gripped me and started dragging me back. The dark sky slowly lit as the sun started to emerge from the bottom horizon. The Krampus stopped dragging me. He dragged me and stared briefly at the rising sun. I'll come get you again, he said as he dropped my leg and retreated to his lair as I lay in the snow. A silhouetted figure came from the distance, and I closed my eyes for what felt like seconds, but when I opened my eyes, the sun was higher in the sky, and the figure was closer. I could make out that he was wearing red. Then I passed out again. I opened my eyes to see an outstretched hand with a black mitten on it. It belonged to a fat, bearded man with a silly hat. Santa? I inquired. Shh, child, he said in a soft, soothing voice. Let me take you home. The next thing I remember was waking up in my bed at home. Levi and Garrett were kidnapped in the middle of the night. I found out from Rebecca, Brad, and Molly who had already told their parents and the cops I tried to tell them what really happened, but no one believed me. They only got mad when I tried to explain it to them. So I gave up on trying to tell them. And that's how I spent my Christmas. Hey everyone, I just want to wish you guys a happy holidays and thank you so much for listening to me all year. Appreciate it.